Hello everyone and welcome to Don't Tell Me to Shut Up because I won't. I'm your host Jesse and welcome to the official first episode of the podcast since last week's was just an introduction. Now we are going to start diving deep into some delicious topics. This week I wanted to kind of kick things off with talking about a little tiki history and diving a little bit more into what makes tiki what it is today. Now, before you start listening to the podcast, I figured I would help set the mood. If you are on Spotify and you want some atmospheric music, you can look up my playlist that I have had for years. It's called Tantalizingly Tiki, and it's got a little hibiscus flower on the end to help set the mood for today. And if not, I would also recommend going on to YouTube and you can just look up Exotica Music or anything by Les Baxter and you will pretty much have the mood that we will be setting. So let's dive in. So tiki as a word holds more than just the definition that we see it as today, you know, with tiki bars or tiki drinks. And I think it's really important to recognize that the word throughout Polynesia, it has a completely different context and weight to it. I got these next couple paragraphs that I'm going to read to you guys from a website called Hawaiian Guide because I wanted to make sure that I was reading from something that was accurate. So, the name tiki can refer to many different types of images used throughout Polynesia, from images used ceremonially by the Maori tribes of New Zealand to the Moai carvings on Easter Island to modern day images displayed in Hawaii. In Polynesian mythology, tiki often represents the first human beings on Earth. These images are still used today in some Polynesian cultures in the context of spiritual practice. It is not uncommon for small tiki figures to be worn for protection from infertility in New Zealand. Tiki statues were carved to represent the image of a certain god and as an embodiment of that specific god's mana or power. With well-formed tikis, perhaps the people could attain protection from harm, strengthen their power in times of war, and be blessed with uh, successful crops. Now, as someone who greatly enjoys and, you know, kind of benefits from, you know, tiki as we see it today, I truly just find it to be very important to recognize that it is not something that we came up with here in America, it is something that we saw in another culture and took it for our own. And it is important to recognize that while tiki started as taking from not only just Polynesian cultures, but, you know, cultures down in the Caribbean and Jamaica, places like that, it's important to recognize that that's where it came from. And the time period in which tiki kind of took off was a very different time period from today. And when I say that, I mean mostly, you know, they were dealing with things like the Great Depression and to people in America who, you know, life was bleak and the outlook was bleak. The way of escape was through places like tiki bars where you could see, quote, quote, exotic cultures that you could not experience at home. And it's important to recognize that in 2024, that's problematic and is a not great way to look at it. But it is how Tiki started. 
So in this next section, every bit of information I'm going to be getting is from the literal Bible for me of Tiki books. It's called Smuggler's Cove. It's by Martin Kate and Rebecca Kate, and it is a vast knowledge of information regarding the start of Tiki. It shows you a million different recipes. It shows you how to make difficult syrups. It shows you like, you know, where you can go to get good tiki drinks um, at different bars across the country. It is the Bible for me for tiki and I highly recommend it to everyone that I can if they're wanting to get more into tiki. You can find it on Amazon and it's usually on sale or sometimes I've seen it at Barnes and Noble, but definitely, definitely check out if you're wanting to learn more about tiki. So as I said earlier, Tiki as it began kind of started in the 1930s and it started with a guy named Don, Don the Beachcomber. His actual name was Ernest Raymond Beaumont Gant and he basically traveled the world in the early 1900s, came back to Hollywood in the 1930s, entranced everyone there with his stories of traveling to places that you know, far and wide that people there had just never experienced. And by 1933, he had saved up enough to open his teeny tiny little bar called Don Beachcombers in Hollywood. And he is kind of known as the father of Tiki to a lot of Tiki people because he basically created the first Tiki bar as we know it today. And what he did that was so special was he took from his travels and kind of incorporated things that he learned in other areas of the world. And in that process, he created an entirely new category of cocktails. He started with old rhymes from the Caribbean that were used to create incredible punches like the planter's punch, which really does punch you in the face. And taking these rhymes that they used, like one of sour, two of sweet, three of strong, four of weak, and kind of built on that and added his own ingredients, kind of went past more than just lime, simple syrup, and rum, and created essentially a library of tiki drinks. And it was an insane success for him because nobody had ever seen anything like that. You mean, you have to imagine in the 30s, There wasn't really like this broad expanse of cocktails past what you see American liquors being used for. And because he brought such a atmosphere to his restaurant, it just doubled on that success. So imagine, you know, it's the 30s and the early 40s. It's Great Depression era, maybe, you know, World War II starting to begin and you're just trying to find an escape from the realities that you're facing and you walk into this bar that has a like tangible humidity in the air because it's got waterfalls there's plants everywhere the wait staff is dressed in this tropical attire that you have never seen before and they serve your drinks in coconuts which literally in america did not happen before then because why would it And, you know, some drinks are on fire. Some drinks have immense amounts of foliage in them. And each one tastes completely different from the other. And there's just a ton of them. It was it was an insane thing that, you know, worked really well, especially for the time with people just wanting an escape from the harsh realities that they were facing. 
by the late 30s, he had so much success that he had to move to a bigger location and ended up actually just changing his name to Don Beach because his bar, Don the Beachcomber, had received so much success and people just associated him with that that he was like, you know what, and I'll go with it. In the Smuggler's Cove book, they have an original picture of the bar, Don the Beachcomber, in Hollywood. And it has such a classic tiki bar maximalism feel. You know, there's the uh, Japanese fishing ball hanging from the ceiling. Everything is made out of rattan. And there's literally leaves everywhere. It's such a beautiful bar. And it's one of those things where I wish I could go back in time and experience just to say that I did. Just to also see how cheap those drinks were. Because I'm sure they were like, you know, two pennies for like one drink. Of course, with the success of his bar, as soon as it opened, there was an immense amount of people from rival bars trying to crack the secrecy of his drinks because most of his drinks were made behind um, the wall. There was like a like a faux bartender almost at the bar, and then they'd have these four people called the four boys making the drinks behind the scenes. And so because of that, he was able to keep quite a level of secrecy. Um with the drinks that he had on hand, which is amazing. And his bottles were unmarked, so you literally did not know what they were. There were codes involved. And because of that, it led to a, of course, you know, when someone does it great once, everyone that wants to duplicate it comes out of the woodwork. And there are people that, you know, duplicate and add to the success of something that's already great. And since we're talking about one of the you know, creators of Tiki. Uh, one of the drinks that Don the Beachcomber made that I feel like a lot of people might know, even if they're not familiar with Tiki, is he created the zombie, which is a drink that has a plethora of ingredients such as, you know, rum, obviously, grapefruit juice. I think it's got sherry in it. It is a powerfully strong drink that I am not the most fond of in terms of flavor. I will have a zombie from time to time. They're usually those drinks that you'll see at a tiki bar where you're like, ah, this one's going to punch me in the face, I think. Respectfully, of course. He ended up having to serve in World War II, and his station in World War II was him, you know, serving alcohol and being in charge of the rest and relaxation camps for officers which i just truly find incredible that that man found a way to girl boss his way to not fighting love that for him he ended up you know when he was done serving he uh moved to hawaii and kind of started tourism in hawaii which is kind of a weird way to phrase that but that is essentially what he did and after he did that he ended up retiring in between hawaii and tahiti and is buried in Oahu. And you know what? Good for him. You know, he kind of brought a whole world of different types of cocktails to America that we just didn't see. And because of him, we have people that he inspired, which brings me to my favorite man, Mr. Trader Vic. He is my, you know, some people have their Don the Beachcombers. I'm more of a Trader Vic guy myself. And it's not just because we still have an original Trader Vic here in Atlanta that opened in the 60s you know it's it's because he he brought food and drink to the mix which i think is a much more fun time at a bar so he lived in san francisco which really is a big factor in his story here because the tiki bar scene now in san francisco is so big 
Um, and when he, you know, was younger and worked as just a bartender, he took notice that one of his drinks um, called the banana cow was way more popular than the other regular simple drinks that he would make. And he wondered, you know, if people would pay more to drink something that was more exotic and more, you know, celebratory. In 1937, he ended up going to Don the Beachcombers to check it out because the hype was just so big and he wanted to see it for himself. And he came out of there a changed man and never wanted to leave and would forever give credit to his success to Don with like the menus that he inspired and how Trader Vic ended up going about his tiki bar. He was so entranced with Don's that he ended up being kicked out because he was just asking so many questions and they were like, oh my God, please leave. And he would be just waiting outside of the doors to get back in to try to ask more questions about the, you know, the bar, the atmosphere, everything about it, which, you know what? Good for him. Now in San Francisco, he did own a bar called Hinky Dinks. And as soon as he came back from his travels to Hollywood, he was like, all right, we're taking it down, down with the deer heads and the fake snow and everything like that, and started, you know, getting the pieces together that he needed to make his own version. You know, he even ended up buying pieces from Don, and in it, in you know, his own way, he wanted to bring, like I said, he wanted to bring food to the table, which I truly, again, that is a king move right there. Now, like I had said, he was you know, located in San Francisco, and he dined in a lot of Chinese restaurants and decided that he wanted to also open one of his own, but he also realized that the westernized version of Chinese food, uh, you know, during the Great Depression had kind of taken off and was the perfect base for the type of food that he was wanting to serve because it was inexpensive, it was technically still exotic, and the tastes were still technically foreign to a lot of Americans at the time. And he went around Chinatown, got inspired by his own ideas. He had Chinese clay ovens built for his restaurant. And now sidebar, those are technically something that still exists, at least in the Trader Vic's in Atlanta today. If you go to the Hilton and you walk down, I mean, literally, you don't even have to go down to where Trader Vic's is. You can smell the smoked meat when you enter the lobby of the Hilton, but they um, are just these incredible ovens that were able to quick and smoke, you know, quickly smoke and cook meat. And they are just a signature of his restaurants to this day. And it was a very quiet opening for him when Trader Vic's opened, but because of the personality that he had himself, it kind of also took on a legacy of its own. I mean, this guy literally had a wooden leg because he had lost his leg due to tuberculosis. And because he had lost his leg, people were like, oh yeah, he got attacked by a shark. And he would like stick knives in it just for fun. And you know what? Again, could you imagine going to a bar and you're like, I don't know, we're in San Francisco. Let's go to this Trader Vic's and you walk in and the owner of the bar is just walking around with a full ass peg leg and stabs it with a knife for fun just just to show you that he can while you're drinking a Mai Tai. That's incredible. So the drinks that he served came in these giant vessels that were decorated, you know, floral 
regalia had like these beautiful scenes on them again things that people had never seen in bars before which is is so crazy to think about um you know now just given the popularity of things like scorpion bowls and and shared drinks and he you know brought swizzle sticks to the world which they were like whoa that's crazy a plastic stick this is unbelievable but it added to the charm and people loved it. And in 1944, he came up with the original recipe for my favorite drink, the Mai Tai. Now, obviously, the Mai Tai recipe has changed a lot since then, but his, his recipe was the original. And we will discuss what a Mai Tai has in it later, because it is very important to me that you know that if you go to a random beach restaurant in Fort Lauderdale or actually, no, Fort Lauderdale is probably really good. If you go to a random beach restaurant in St. Petersburg and they say, oh, here's a Mai Tai and it has orange juice in it, I need you to walk away. So his location in San Francisco really kind of became the food mecca of his restaurants that ended up, you know, his restaurants and bars that ended up opening elsewhere. You know, he kind of heralded it as like a way to bring refined Chinese cooking and it's actually just American Chinese food but he really like brought a whole new genre of food to Americans and he called it imaginative American food but he was the first restaurant in the U.S. to serve Indonesian curry now granted it was blended with French and American cooking techniques but it was still bringing new styles of food from across the world and bringing it to an audience and making it more accessible. And I think that that is so freaking cool. One of my favorite facts about him that I usually tell people if uh, they're wanting to know more about Tiki is that Mr. Vic himself not only came up with the recipe for the Mai Tai, but he came up with the crab rangoon. And who does not love a crab rangoon? I mean, I mean, really, like it, the correlation between those two things, it's just like one of those, the ships sailing in the night you would not expect to be coming from the same person. But yeah, Mr. Vic himself came up with the original Crab Rangoon, and of course, it was an, a, a hit immediately. By the time it fully evolved, Trader Vic's in San Francisco was a multi-story, multiple bar and dining room location. And the... I think the initial location, which was in Oakland, it just kind of completely overtook the success because it expanded on the theme of Trader Vic's and then just refined it and tweaked it and made it better. And it is just like to, to be, again, to, to be back in time, to be a fly on the wall and go to this Trader Vic's location and see just like the taxidermy fish, the giant clams, weapons, like diving masks and things like that could you imagine just walking into it it's not just going to get a drink it is going for an experience by the 1960s there were 25 trader vix locations across the world and it reached places obviously like atlanta and denver chicago detroit and it was no longer just something that california had as like their own Ooh, we we have the tiki bars here and i think that there's something really crazy when we talk about tiki in the future seeing how it has affected like the midwest because that i feel like is the most quintessential place quintessential place you would want to have tiki um bars because there's there's nothing there right so like the tiki bars that are in the midwest 
tend to have um, these days tend to have a lot of flair and showmanship and these incredible drinks because they they got they got planes and flatlands all around them. They got to have something fun and the escapism is still there, but just in a much more modern way. And that is honestly the, the story of the two titans of Tiki. Don and Vic really turned Tiki into what it is today. And even though there were plenty of other people who replicated and duplicated, no one can stand next to these two as pioneers of the cocktail journey and also people who cared about the drinks that they were making and the theatrical show that they were putting on and bringing that to the masses it's really them that we have to thank for that and i mean i do thank them for it because i i i love my time at these these crazy themed bars so while don and vic were pioneers for the age of tiki beginning what really solidified it as a style and a you know a fad and a craze was the 50s and the 60s and it came in all forms shapes and sizes whether it be the opening of more tiki bars that were chains like con uh, tiki ports or kona kai or coming in the form of fashion and stuff that you would see in your houses and even things like the disney parks of course can't can't have a podcast with me without mentioning Walt Disney and the Enchanted Tiki Room because that is one of my favorite things to experience on any day in Adventureland. But it was truly just everyone saw South Pacific regalia and were like, oh my God, that's um we we want that for escapism. And it was just a really, really safe and easy way to experience tropical and exotic lifestyle without leaving you know the suburbs and there is something to be said for that i think in both ways because a lot of the times things like this wouldn't be accessible if it wasn't just for the fact that it was a trend but polynesian inspired architecture became a thing and you could see that in a lot of mid-century design it was called contiki style and it would be like a-frame roof lines lava rock water features flickering gas torches obviously very bright colors and it became a literal style for houses. And I think that that is something I know for, I, I definitely miss in architecture and, and the style of houses now. I feel like everything is so cookie cutter these days, but back then there was just so much beautiful style and color and just pops of life in houses because of this craze that people had with Tiki. And I do feel it is important to mention that while Don and Vic were the first, there was a third man who helped bring in the almost the dramatic flair to the highest degree that we would see in tiki bars. Um, his name is Steve Crane, and he came up with the luau as a bar, like the, the name of the, the tiki bar was called the luau. But he actually used Hollywood set designers to bring his bar to life. And he brought waterfalls and footbridges and macaws and alligators and theatrical effects and murals and rainstorms to his bar. And really kind of, I think like Don, Trader Vic, and then Crane as like, I guess the trifecta. And it is wrong for me to have not said something about him beforehand. Apologies, Mr. Crane. We are talking about it now. He, I guess you would more associate with Polynesian pop design because he had these giant grand maximalism landscapes with very like intimate booths and very plushy seats and that kind of thing. 
when he would greet guests in the restaurant. He would wear a safari suit, ascot, Panama hat, and lays. But alas, by the end of the 1960s, Tiki was beginning to hit its decline. And unfortunately, places like the Luau, while seeming at the time charming and there was a naivety to it, um, people were beginning to be raised in a more globally aware world and it at you know at best felt you know patronizing or inauthentic but at the worst it did feel racist so there was just a very sharp decline in the tiki bars unfortunately after this point a lot of this comes from boomers at the time who were fighting in south asia and would see you know kind of like the format of a tiki bar where you're being served, um, you know, this, this Asian inspired food by a white waiter. And then you have your, your, your deliciously tropical drinks. And then you're out the next day killing people who look like the people that you're trying to, um, appropriate. And it didn't go over well. And it kind of makes sense, you know, like it is a sad thing to see such a like unique style decline but at the time you can understand why it did because it was just you know we're in the you know the height of like the vietnam war and people were just becoming more aware that that was just not a good thing to do because you're not appreciating the culture you're appropriating the culture you know by the time we hit the 80s there was just bars falling left and right and i think you know the what they talk about in smuggler's cove about what what's so sad about the destruction of tiki wasn't necessarily the destruction of like these buildings but the destruction of the flavor of tiki and what makes the drinks so like special and unique because you can go to as they say in here you can go to any hotel bar and get an old-fashioned that's you know that's fine but you can't go to any bar and get a sidewinder's fang and i think that the people who really wanted those kind of flavors just kind of fell to the wayside and the trend you know as all trends do came and went and for all you know very good reasons you know it it totally makes sense why everything kind of went down the way that it did it's just sad that it did tiki at that point kind of became more synonymous with you know beach bars margaritas and then like that kind of thing you could almost say like parrot heads with like jimmy buffett it kind of got mixed in and even though they're not the same they're similar enough that people could kind of lump them together and it could be its own thing. And that's fine. You know, that, that is the birth and death of Tiki in a nutshell, but then we get the beautiful revival that is Tiki. Tiki revival was something that would take a long time to happen. And there really had to be a complete reformat of what we saw Tiki as, or what people saw Tiki as, because it wasn't just, um, bringing in a culture that wasn't your own and making drinks out of it it had it completely redefined itself to fit a new modern age as they say in smuggler's cove no other cocktail craze is surrounded by an entire pop culture movement encompassing art music ceramics carving fashion and more these drinks while valid and vital on their own do not exist in a vacuum today the tiki revival in the united states is in full swing and interest continues to grow at an astounding rate to draw people from wildly different backgrounds and subcultures and the reason is simple it is the same as what drew people to tiki in the first place a sense of escape 
of wonder, of mystery, an affordable journey to a far-off place, because sometimes paradise is just much closer than you think. The guy that is credited with bringing back the revival of Tiki is named Sven Kirsten. He grew up in Germany, and he wrote a book called The Book of Tiki in 1992. It would take about eight years for it to actually find a home in the world, but that is the essential kickoff to what we see the Tiki revival as from then until now. And to see what it is now, it's still a movement movement. <laughs> it's still a culture that is growing and changing every single day. And while it's still niche, there are more bars popping up now and then, and there are more conventions popping up, and there's just more of an appreciation for what used to be than starting something completely new. There is also an, a wonderful guy named Jeff Beach Bomberry who is credited with unearthing many of the lost drink recipes um, from the past and bringing them back into the spotlights. And I, and it's because he got to experience some of the tiki culture he got to experience was at the height of the 60s when he was just a kid. And he said he's been into it ever since. And he now travels across the country um, showing people recipes. And he has his own new takes on these recipes that he's come up with, which is awesome. It's great to see these people taking what used to be and giving it new life. Sven Kirsten has a quote in the book that says, Nowadays, through internet, television, and documentaries, we've become very aware that paradise on Earth does not exist. Even these South Sea islands have their own complex problems and set of rules and were not as idyllic as the Western world wanted them to be. But the human being created this illusion because it has an innate need to believe in paradise on Earth. And I think that that is something that you can still have as long as you're aware of the past, present, and the future of Tiki. Now we go to modern tiki. Now, modern tiki as we see it today is something that I feel I will put the book down because I will speak of my own experiences with it instead of referencing something that I can find in a book. So for me, I didn't really know anything about tiki until about 2015. Now, at the time, I was really big into the Disney parks and we happened to be going to Magic Kingdom uh, for the 24-hour event that they did, which admittedly, thinking about it in hindsight, is just absolutely insane to be at Magic Kingdom for 24 hours. That's crazy. But that was what we were there for. And at the time, I had not really explored a lot of the parks. I didn't start going to the parks until 2011, so much of that was just completely new foreign territory to me and I know that the Polynesian Resort had just finished it was its remodel and I was like oh that would be so cool if we check that out they have like a like a Trader Sam's bar there you know we should go check that out you know just to, just to see just to see like what was it like what's what are they doing over there and while that was technically my first experience with Trader Sam's in some capacity because we sat on the lanai and I had a spiky pineapple, which is Dole Whip mixed with rum. It wasn't until 2020 that I actually truly experienced what Tiki was like. And it was really in my own city, which is awesome. Atlanta in 2020 had, I think, three core Tiki bars that I would have suggested at the time. We have Trader Vic's, which has been there forever. You have SOS, um, the SOS Hideaway, which is in Decatur, and then you have Tiki Tango. Now, I started out at Tiki Tango. That was my first experience, but from there, I kind of 
enjoyed other bars more. But Tiki Tango in February 2020 was my first real experience with a Tiki bar somehow. And it awoken something in me. And it awoken something in me even before. Well, that's not true because it was February 2020. So it was like right at the beginning of COVID. But it awoken something in me that I just didn't know was there. And I started learning as much as I could. I ended up getting the Smuggler's Cove book. Later on, like, I think it really was about 2021 and mid and late 2021 that I started going to other bars. But I learned as much as I could about Tiki in the time of the pandemic. And it really was like not that much that I, you know, it's kind of hard to learn about it when you can't really experience it because it's not one of those things where you can really experience it in your basement during a pandemic. But I still did what I could because it was just such a fascinatingly different world from just going to a bar and getting a vodka club. And when we went to Tiki Tango, I remember being pretty impressed with the menu. And it was really then that I learned that Tiki Bars had a more like American Chinese menu because I saw it there firsthand. But in reality, my favorite experience at a tiki bar ever has, you know, in Atlanta has been with SOS, which we went to for the first time on New Year's in 2021, just to see if we, you know, just to see if we liked it. And that, I think, while going to Tiki Tango awoken that in me, SOS honed it in and kind of created the expectation that I had for tiki bars after that point because the bartenders were incredible and so sweet and just absolute mastermen at what they were doing and then the food was also you know just top tier and I really just kind of dived deep into the world of tiki and then in the summer of 2021 was the first time I ever went to Trader Vic's and experienced it and getting to see an old tiki bar like that that wasn't something that had been around for just like a couple years you know had been around for decades and seeing just this this very like lived in building i know that sounds weird because if you go there you're like i mean it is cool it's big but it does have taxidermy turtles everywhere there are puffer fish hanging from the ceiling it's very dark the walls are very like you know dark brown and they've got the design from the um thatched um wallpaper they've got thatched roofs it's it's very traditional tiki but for me i found a very cozy comfort in those kind of places and from there you know with my limited means i've been able to experience some other tiki bars you know across the different states across the country even and it's really given me an appreciation for tiki as more than just a drink that I feel it is very important that I cover that. I know I've kind of touched base on that like a couple times throughout this podcast, but I do feel it is very important for me to say that Tiki to me is not just the drinks. It has never been just the drinks. It's like the reason it got popular in the first place. It's because it's it's a form of escapism. It's the it's the food. It's the the theatricalness to it, the intricate detail to these drinks that like, I mean, I don't see anything else like that in terms of like a, especially from a bar culture standpoint. And it brings people together because the food is good. Hopefully the drinks really push people outside of their comfort zone. 
And then also just the way that you dress for it, you know, like you can find, I mean, what a treat it is to have like vintage and pieces from the 60s or 70s of these tiki styles and and wearing that and just parading around in it. It is my favorite thing to do. And when I have friends come to visit me, it is like a, a rite of passage to take them to SOS and, and introduce them even if very briefly to the world of tiki that I, you know, have come to love over these past couple of years. And it's just something very, very special. It's brought me closer to all my friends. It's something that me and my boyfriend both enjoy together. You know, we love making the drinks and making the syrups and figuring out like a, almost like a math equation, but since it's not math, it's actually fun. Figuring out like what ingredients were used to make this drink and what would we do if we had our own home tiki bar? You know, like I dream of a day where I can have a basement and fill it with all of this maximalism, dead fish everywhere, and just having a cozy space to have a community with others in. I feel like that kind of really is tiki to me, at least in a nutshell. And I am so thankful that you have stuck around with me on this journey of tiki because it's something that we will continue to deep dive into over the next, you know, however many episodes of this we do, whether it be deep diving onto recipes or talking about certain tiki bars, things like that. I, I want to share this with you guys because it is something that has only made my life that much better in in every aspect. I mean, I love it so much. I've got it tattooed on me now. Um, and I want more. I would love to have a Mai Tai on me some somehow. And in that case, I want to talk to you guys about a Mai Tai because I figure the best way to wrap up this episode is to give you a recipe for a drink if you want to try to make it, of course. Now, Mr. Vic did keep his Mai Tai recipe tr pretty close to the chest and a lot of the ingredients that he used to make it don't even exist anymore. Like the type of rum that he would use um, doesn't necessarily exist anymore. But a core Mai Tai recipe always has the same ingredients. And you can alter them from that. But to have an original as close as you can to a 1944, this is, these are the ingredients that you need. You need an aged rum or golden or amber rum, uh, orange liqueur like Curacao, lime juice or jot syrup, simple syrup if you want the sweetness, and then dark rum as a floater. Now, or jot is um, like, a, like an almond syrup it, that is made, you can make it yourself, literally. There's a recipe for it in Smuggler's Cove, um, but it gives a very sweet, nutty flavor that's not like a macadamia nut flavor. It's its own thing, but it's specific to a Mai Tai. You use it in a lot of other drinks, but it's very specific to a Mai Tai. You can find it at most liquor stores if you have a total wine they have a really nice one um but usually there's also a pretty run-of-the-mill simple or jot and it is definitely it is needed to make this drink what it is when it comes to things like the curacao grand marnier is your best bet for achieving the flavor as close to it as you can in terms of simplicity and then when it comes to the rums you know it's always best to kind of do some research on rums because you don't want to add like Bacardi to the to, to your Mai Tai. You kind of want to give it a little bit of class. And it's very, very easy to find, you know, to start and find whatever rum you want to use. We usually use Pusser's rum or Plantation in our Mai Tais. Um, 
Now they are strong. I will say like most tiki drinks, they kind of pack a punch, but you're using very fresh ingredients. So it's bigger than just having like, you know, a, 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 a strawberry daiquiri, you know, you're going to get more flavor and it's going to be better tasting. And I hope you guys try it out. There's plenty of recipes online for it. Those are just the ingredients. You know, I'm not going to obviously go through the entire recipe for you, but there are plenty of, of recipes out there. Just look up, please look up original Mai Tai recipe. Very, very, very important that you follow that when you make a Mai Tai because they're very, very good and they can be very easily messed up. Please do not put grenadine in your Mai Tai. I am begging you, please do not put grenadine or orange juice or pineapple juice in your Mai Tai. That is not Mai Tai. That is just a tropical drink. And there's a difference and you're gonna make people's hair fall out. You can't do that. So that kind of wraps up today's episode. I hope you guys enjoyed going on a little journey through tiki history with me. There is so much more that I did not cover because I'm trying to keep it short, sweet, and to the point, just like a Mai Tai. But I hope that it kind of opens up your eyes a little bit to a new a new way of, of drinking or experiencing drinks with friends. Truly, I think there is something so fun and unique about tiki drinks and I think everyone can find something that they love whether it be the drinks or the food or the fashion or the history go off with it have fun and I really hope you guys enjoyed this episode I will be back next week who knows what we'll be talking about then but until then please enjoy a Mai Tai on me (laughs) 